Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us listening today and happy to have a full room here today. Morning, Dustin. Good morning, Brad. And Bob. Good morning. Philip. Hey, Brad. Brian. Hi, Brad. And we have Dr. Kelly Alms with us as well. Hi, Kelly. Morning. Thanks. So we're happy to have all of you here with us. And we've got Dr. Alms is Associate Coordinator for the National Animal Health Lab Network at the USDA National Veterinary Services Lab. Wow, that's a long business card. We'll get to what that actually means here in a minute, but we'll talk through some of the stuff that you do on a daily basis that may affect your operation, including what are some of the major diseases that we look at as a nation controlling in our agricultural species, cattle and beyond, as well as others. We'll also dive a little bit into, okay, how does this affect my operation? What type of concerns should I have or preparations should I make as far as biosecurity? And then I'm going to ask Bob to address it from a veterinary side, or what are the preparations that veterinarians make in preparation for potential diseases? Before we jump into those questions, we are right in the heart of fall. And with fall comes lots of different traditions that people have as they go through. And all the time I ask you guys, what's your favorite? What's your best? I want to ask you, what, what tradition or fall thing do you go, ah, I just don't see what the fuss is, or I don't see what's the excitement because it's not that great. So I'm, I'm going to throw out, I'll start with one and I'll say pumpkin spice. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to go against it. So I want to know what, what thing about fall are you not in favor of? Well, I'm not as big a Scrooge as you are. <laughs> so I don't know that I have one that's just totally You don't, you don't have anything about fall you're negative about? I'm trying to think. I can't think of anything right now. Okay. Bob? Well, you know, maybe the, the one is... I try to like caramel apples, but I, I don't. So I, I like the concept of caramel apples, yeah. but I, I don't really. Wait, what's wrong? An apple dipped in caramel. <laughs> I know. I That's wrong? <laughs> uh, it's, it's kind of embarrassing, and I don't think anybody else knows this about me now. <laughs> the one I'm not in favor of is leaf raking. I, you know, <laughs> I live in the country. I really don't care about what my yard looks like as long as it's— It's going to blow away eventually. It'll yeah. mulch or blow away, right? Like, yeah, you know— and maybe at one time it was fun to rake it up for the kids and let them jump in it. But I, I'll just mow it, you know. Dustin? I don't know that I have anything. I just kind of go with the flow, except this whole pumpkin spice. I've already stopped at least at Freddy's or Vista three or four times and got the pumpkin <laughs> spice <laughs> concretes or blizzards or whatever they call them. And I've, I'm a big fan. Yeah. See, well, you and I are not going to get those together. Kelly, do you have anything? I, I would say um, apple cider because I don't drink anything warm or hot. See, perfect. So, so yeah. apple cider is a no-go. You can have it cold, too. It's not, not as good. But, yeah, so all the fall traditions, and we just did the opposites, except for Philip, who loves everything about fall. So <laughs> <laughs> this is your favorite time of year. It is. It's I, my favorite season. Yeah, uh, it's mine, too, except for the pumpkin spice. So, Kelly, tell us a little bit about you and what I, I mentioned your long title, but to kind of break that down. So, so USDA, most are familiar with, and then the National Veterinary Services Lab is over the country. And then you're working in the Animal Health Lab network. So tell us a little bit about what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Sure. So um, it's pretty confusing for people because they assume since it has a laboratory in the title that we actually have a laboratory, but we don't. So we're literally about a dozen people helping organize and um, get everybody on the same page from 59 different labs across the United States. 
And most of those are associated with either a state laboratory or a university diagnostic lab. Yep. So those would be diagnostic labs that typically will serve the agriculture in that state, and they'll serve all aspects of animal production in that state. But they do a variety of different diagnostic tests. And so you coordinate with them kind of to keep your hand on the pulse of What's going on as far as disease trends? Yes. So the diseases we're most worried about, we have 14 diseases that fall under our scope, and they all would cause regulatory action of some sort, whether that be a foreign animal disease or a disease that we have endemically within the United States, but something that still is going to result in some kind of regulatory action with a positive result. So there, there are many diseases, and, and Bob, I'll turn to you for a second. So when, when you practice or work with practitioners, as you think through some of the diseases, there's actually a reporting process that you have to go through if you see certain things. Yeah, one of the things that I think works really well in the United States is our set of laboratories, as well as the involvement of private practitioners. So private veterinarians are always the first line uh, to ask questions to. So as a producer, private veterinarians are going to be who you talk to, and they know who to talk to to follow that up. And it's the state veterinarian. And and again, I, I like living in a, in a rural state. We I think every veterinarian in the state of Kansas knows our state veterinarian by name, phone number, and and has a good relationship with that office and can give them a call. And so I think things work best when it is not a, you know, unknown entity, an unknown agency, but it's working with people that you know, either in your community as your local veterinarian or as a veterinarian, I'm going to call the state veterinarian who I know fairly well. And Brian, you, you spent time in practice as well as here at the K-State Diagnostic Lab. So mm-hmm. you've interacted with a couple different aspects. What's, what's your perspective? Yeah, so in most recently, pro- more recently from the laboratory perspective, right? So that laboratory is is kind of one more point in that network, right? So you have the state veterinarian, you have the private practitioner, and the laboratory sits right in the middle, right? And so someone who was in the lab, if we get a certain test result, our first call is, well, our first two calls, one is to the practitioner that submitted the sample and one is to the state veterinarian. And I think we're going to talk about kind of what Kelly does and kind of what happens on the national level, but, you know, then that institutes kind of a whole response, right? Yeah, absolutely. And Kelly, what are some of the big diseases you're dealing with now? Or do you have any ongoing projects? Yep. So high path avian influenza um, or highly pathogenic avian influenza, HPAI as a lot of folks call it, um, has been happening across the United States since uh, February of this year. Um, And we have an ongoing outbreak. And unfortunately, this time of year, fall, the least favorite time of year for people with birds right now, um, fall migration is happening. And so there's a lot of new cases happening. The other focus for us right now is ASF, African Swine Fever Surveillance Strategies, due to the ongoing outbreak um, down in the Dominican Republic and Haiti on the island of Hispaniola. Yeah. And to be clear, HPAI, the, the bird influenza, we have here now. ASF, African swine fever, we do not have here. Absolutely. Now. So there's two different responses, So which is a good compare and contrast for part of what your organization does is deal with stuff that's happening now as well as try to prevent some of those new things from coming in. Yep, absolutely. So we have, you know, ongoing surveillance at all times for many different diseases, and not all of those fall in within the non-scope veterinarians that are out there doing surveillance testing on regular endemic diseases happen all the time as well. But our diseases specifically, we try to come up with a a strategy and a surveillance plan involving that network of labs we have across the United States to try to provide a way for early detection if something new would come into our country. Yeah, and I think that's a critical role. And, and, And many of us, thankfully, 
don't have to spend our days thinking about that because there are others that do because they have big trade implications as far as exports, but also those diseases have huge impacts on production organizations. So you talked about the, the high path AI or HPAI and the migrating birds we have very little control over because our bird growing facilities are where they are, right? You've got controlled environments, you've got places that we raise birds that you try to avoid contact, but it's very, very challenging. So you've got field crew that go do those investigations. So that, that leads us right into, and, and I want to think about, uh, let's transfer from, we talked about birds and swine a little bit, but let's go back to the cattle operation. And if you have a cow-calf operation or a stalker or a feedlot, there are diseases that I'm concerned about there. And you mentioned a term, endemic. So endemic being diseases that we have and we deal with versus some of the other diseases that may be out there. If I want to keep those diseases off my operation, what are some of the best management practices that I could do both endemic diseases, diseases already there, and other diseases? And, and Brian, I'll start with you. And we've talked about biosecurity on the podcast before. And so, you know, there's some good general recommendations. And I guess everything kind of centers around exposure, right? And so if it's something that isn't endemic in our herd or something we don't know we have, then our high-risk behaviors are introducing new animals or fence line contact with different groups of animals. And so as a very broad general recommendation, avoiding those things is what you do. Um, now, it's not always possible, right? Some herds are trying to grow numbers, whatever, we have to purchase animals. So there are things that we can do um, if we have to purchase those. We've talked about this in the podcast before again, but um, isolating new animals for periods of time. And again, that is variable for which disease you're trying to keep out. Um, there may be options for specific testing of animals as they come in. All of those things, like how how long you isolate or if you isolate, how long you isolate, do you test? All of those things, doing or not doing those, really depends on the the risk tolerance for the operation, right? So if I, you know, if I have a very high value herd and I absolutely want to keep those things out, you're going to do them. You're going to isolate for longer periods of time. You're going to test as test for those things that we can test for. Absolutely. Good points. Bob or Philip. Well, I was going to bring up a question. We've talked before, like you said, fence line contact, bringing new animals in, but I know in the swine industry, they worry a little bit about the feed mill and the feed mill being a, a area where the um, diseases from one farm to another can be transmitted. And in the beef industry, we had the same, kind of the same situation. We had a feed truck going from farm to farm to farm to unload feed. Is that, a, is that a big issue for some of these diseases in the beef operation? And how should we try to address that? So I, I think what you're referring to, so there's actually some research that's been done here at Kansas State, specifically looking at African swine fever, the disease Kelly talked about um, earlier. And they have shown that it's a virus and it will persist in the feed for periods of time. And so, again, depends on which specific disease you're talking about. Uh, some viruses, bacteria, they, they do not survive very well at all for long periods of time in heat or sunlight absolutely kills them no issue for other diseases and, and this wouldn't be a reportable disease and it's certainly not a foreign animal disease but something like salmonella salmonella live in the environment for months if not years and so things like that may may be of a concern and so we're i think we're going to talk about a little more detail about biosecurity and practitioner responses but you know one of the 
one of the control points may be the feed truck. Kelly, did you have a thought on that? It, yeah, not only the feed itself, but definitely the feed truck. So just that that acting as sort of a vector to transfer from farm to farm and, and as part of the biosecurity plan, making sure you have a, a way to mitigate that. So I think Dr. Jordan Gephardt did a lot of that research here. And one of the things that, that he found from visiting with him is it's part of, it's how we transmit our daily activities, right? So if I have something that's relatively easily transmissible, if I get out of the truck for whatever reason, and I walk through a pen, I walk through a group, I walk, I get animal exposure, and then I get back in the truck, if it's a pathogen that I can move that way, I can move it around with me, right? And then I go to the next place, it's on my boots, it's other places. But I think this is where what you said, Brian, it's, it's really important. What are we talking about? Which pathogens? Because most of our pathogens that we deal with in cattle are not that way. W would you agree, Bob? Yeah. And that's one of the things that we, we talk about all the things that can cause disease in cattle or other animal species. And and, that, and, and again, I'm just going to throw it back to you. That's why you talk to your veterinarians, because there's no way to know um, as a beef producer or a livestock producer, all the attributes of, of the common diseases we deal with. But some of those attributes are some some diseases are easily transmitted, so they're very contagious. Others are, are much less so. It takes a larger dose. It takes just the right situation. Some diseases are going to pass through mostly, you know, dirt, manure, those types of things. Others are going to go through the air. And, and again, be, because of those differences between the different types of diseases, the risk of transmission from one herd to another varies a lot depending on distance and what is the contact and those types of things. And the other part that I'm gonna throw in there is veterinarians benefit a lot from learning from other veterinarians. I'm involved with two organizations, the Academy of Veterinary Consultants and the American Association of Bovine Practitioners, who both have some animal health or cattle health committees that really work on uh, helping practitioners stay up to date on what's the latest information, what are some good sources of information about how, how to protect our clients' herds. And so, Yes, we're taught this in vet school, but things change and, and are updated. And so uh, veterinarians are working really hard to stay up to date on, on how best to do surveillance and intervene to protect their clients' herds. Okay, so you guys have taken a complex issue and potentially there's another layer of complexity here with all of the different, it depends on disease, it depends what should I do. So I'm going to go back to our original question. I've got, and let me narrow the scope a little bit. I've got a cow-calf operation. What should I do as far as biosecurity when I'm thinking about both diseases we have and diseases we don't have? Some of the things that you have in your toolbox, one is sanitation. So that's sanitation, including things like feed and feed trucks coming in. So washing tires and those kinds of things. And do we have to do it all the time? Not necessarily, but you might think about kind of what's the route, what, is, what other exposures to the vehicles coming off your farm or onto your farm. Another is some diagnostic testing. There are some specific diseases that we have accurate tests for that really help us identify uh, carrier animals. And, and typically when this works best is carrier animals are rare. And so if you have a disease where carrier animals are rare and I can find them with an accurate diagnostic test, that's one way to keep them off my farm. And then other things are just good animal health. So that includes vaccinations to protect them against the diseases that we know are there. Uh, I'll, I'll, you got to talk to the nutritionist. So just good animal health, which a lot of times is built on their nutritional status. Are they in good health? So sanitation, use of diagnostic testing, use of uh, vaccinations, and just overall good health. Basically, the, 
the healthier you can have your environment and your cattle, uh, the more resistant and resilient they are to these types of problems. Absolutely, and I think excellent points. The one, the one I would add, and I'd probably put it closer to the top of your list, and you guys mentioned it, but just implicitly, implicitly stated, prioritization. Which diseases am I most concerned about and how am I going to protect against those? And because it's a sliding scale, because there are costs associated with each of those. And I, and I do want to, to visit, you mentioned a couple of the organizations, Bob, that you work with. And I know some of them have worked together on a, on a way to respond in practice. Because, Dustin, you, when you did some of the work on traceability several years ago, we talked about what are some of the potential implications if we get a highly transmissible disease in an area. And I think when you looked at some of those numbers, it, it's going to be very hard to control or contain in just a small area. Yeah, when we were looking, I guess it depends on the disease, but there's so many factors, right? You guys have already hit on either transmission factors and then, of course, probabilities of these all these things happening or there's costs associated with all of them um, could be small it, it, or it could be really big it just depends on a whole bunch of different factors like you talked about the time of year if it's a certain migration pattern etc yeah lots of lots of different areas so bob bob what is the what have the organizations come up with well one of the things i guess maybe my perspective is um you know if something were to be really damaging in your local area. So, you know, African swine fever for the swine producers or foot and mouth disease for uh, beef cattle producers. Uh, it could really feel isolating really quickly. But I would encourage people to think about, you've got a local veterinarian that would be your first line of contact. If you're the veterinarian and you're kind of feeling isolated, you've got the state veterinarians and you've got some of these organizations that I just mentioned, uh, the Academy of Veterinary Consultants and American Association of Bovine Practitioners, just recently did a joint working group to come up with some kind of how, how to provide support to veterinary practices that are in rural communities serving livestock clients in the face of one of these outbreaks. So providing information that they would need to uh, transmit to their clients, information that they'll need to transmit between each other, and how do we as quickly as possible either maintain or resume normal activities. And I, I guess I would say is the good thing about agriculture and veterinary medicine and some of these connections are we have kind of a, a web of people that all have the same goal which is well let's let's protect our clients let's protect our livestock and you're never in it alone and there's been a lot of groundwork done now so that uh, we're trying to prevent these problems from ever occurring but we've also started the process of if they happen how do we get back to normal as quickly as possible and Kelly, that's one of the things your group does as well, right, is, is works on how do we manage some of those biosecurity plans, how do we plan before, and we talked about ASF, but this is another area. Yeah, so biosecurity plans or, or secure food supply plans, so secure beef plans, secure pork plan, et cetera. Um, you know, here in our state, the State Department of Agriculture has templates for those. They'll they'll get into a veterinarian, a producer, et cetera. And having those plans in place before something happens saves a lot of time and usually saves saves a lot of um, heartache for producers and veterinarians that are involved in those cases. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, one of the things we need to emphasize, too, is for, for the severe high-consequence disease, and we've talked about endemic diseases, we've talked about foreign animals, the Severe, high-consequence diseases, some of them are foreign animal disease, which means they aren't here. Some of them that are, you know, they're not, we are working to mitigate those, right? So we don't, we don't want people to be afraid because 
one of the big things with the biosecurity plan is the communication, like the, and I shouldn't say just communication, proper communication. So if you think you have one of these, that's a hard call to make, but you got to make that call because time really, really is critical. And, you know, we have people like Kelly and the USDA that their goal is to confirm or not confirm as quickly as possible, right? Because there are other diseases that look like a lot of these diseases. And so their job is to, to get in there immediately. And so um, I know we have a network of veterinarians here in the state of Kansas that they can be on the farm literally in hours and start that process. And they all get trained on specifically what do those diseases look like? What do the common diseases look like? What are the differentiating factors? How You just got back from some training. I did, yeah. So I just helped with one of those courses. So yeah, all of those um, veterinarians across our state and the nation are foreign animal disease diagnosticians, and they are all specifically trained. They're trained for um, to look at clinical signs, symptoms, and how to take samples appropriately um, and get them to the lab in a really timely fashion to get answers. So call, don't wait if you th- if you see something unusual. But it, but I would start with and Bob, you mentioned this. Call call your local vet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it all starts in your local community, and you get quick response that way. You get people that really know your operation and your risk factors, and that allows us, I think, to make really good decisions as fast as we can. But but either way, you want to build. And I think if if you have not heard the term secure beef supply or secure pork supply. You probably should get familiar with that. Figure out what's available in your area because the Secure Beef Supply Program, which is the one I'm more familiar with, is uh, certainly an opportunity, and I see it as preparation, right? It is getting prepared for what we can do on our operation, but it's also immediate implementation of several practices because there are good practices there that are helpful for some of the things that we're doing as we go forward, right? Yeah, uh, the, the best situation is when we don't have any of these foreign animal diseases ever make it here you know ever but the good thing is a lot of the protocols that we think about in the planning that we do help to deal with and and decrease the risk and the impact of the diseases that that we deal with every day no doubt putting some of those practices into play and i think biosecurity is often a topic when it's brought up we talked a fair bit about it today when it's brought up i go oh biosecurity again right no offense kelly (laughs) but it is it is really an important topic it's kind of like when we say insurance right when somebody brings up insurance i make the same face as i do with biosecurity because it it is important i know i need to deal with it but what you guys have done and, and what you've talked through today is given me some specific tools that will allow me to go forward so we appreciate Dr. Alms joining us. She is, uh, uh, again, works with the National Animal Health Lab Network and works with the National Veterinary Services Lab, which is a network of, of people across the country. And then there are other folks at the state level. So if you see something, think about it and talk to your, talk to your veterinarian, as well as look up those secure beef supply or secure pork supply if it's, if it's for your operation. They also have a secure milk supply program. So we're happy to have you with us. And if you have any questions, thoughts, topics you'd like us to talk about, you can always send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. Mm-hmm.